you know, I find cybersecurity fascinating. And being a CISO, you kind of get a wider view and you see more than just security. You get a chance to work with legal and compliance and risk and all these other different departments. And you get a chance to see how businesses are run and how security and technology ties into them. Yeah, so for me, it's all about opportunity and how far you want to take it. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak with Gary Hayslip, U.S. Navy veteran and CISO at SoftBank Investment Advisors. Gary and I talk about the challenges military personnel face when transitioning into the business world, how to effectively identify and remediate security failings, and how our understanding of risk ownership is driving CISOs to the edge. Imagine being part of a tight-knit community for the last four to sometimes 20 years, and then suddenly having to relearn everything you know about work. How do we help our veterans make the transition from service to their country to serving the business? And how can we improve our understanding of who owns risk to keep security leaders from burning out. Gary, thank you for joining the show. For the uninitiated, if you would please introduce yourself. My name is Gary Hayslip. I've been in the field of IT and cybersecurity for about 20 plus years, you know, uh, both when I was in the military and then later at the city of San Diego and WebRoot. And my current role is a CISO for uh, SoftBank. I'm really active in the community. I write, I keynote, I mentor, and I work with other, you know, with the people who are coming in, work with vets that are transitioning and coming into cyber. I'm definitely a cheerleader for our community and really think it's a great place, you know, for people to work. That's no question. I think most people probably know who you are, or at least have seen some of your your online work product. But uh, for those that don't know, sometimes it's nice just to do a quick intro. I, I actually met you years ago when you were in San Diego. Uh, we both worked to um, do some advisory work for a VAR. I don't know that we really knew each other well then, but uh, I'm excited now to have you on the show to, to interview you and pick your brain. Well, very good. You've done a lot. You said starting in military and then worked in several different areas. In that process, you mentioned also uh, vets transitioning what advice would you have given yourself in that period of time of transitioning from military to civilian? And if there's a, a vet listening or someone who is currently in or soon to get out or, or maybe just transitioned, what, what advice would you kind of give yourself or give them? What's, what are the challenges there? I want to jump right into that. Actually, it's interesting because if you're enlisted, you do a quick transitioning class and boom, you're into something that's totally different than you've never experienced before. And what I mean by that is that enlisted, they do their four or six years or, or like me, I did 20, I did a full career. And at the end of it, you know, you get like one class that's there to kind of help you transition and kind of teach you about, you know, hey, you're going to be getting a retirement check and hey, this is how to write a resume. And after that one class, you're done. Considered to be ready for you know, a whole different world that you've never even experienced before. And most civilians, if you've never been in the military, 
you don't know how jarring that is for veterans. And the reason is, is that for the last four, six, 10, 20 years of their life that they've been serving their country, everything's been taken care of. They knew what they were doing every morning when they got up and when they went to bed at night. They knew pretty much how their day, their week, their month, their year was planned out, deployments, moves, whatever they were going to be doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, that comes to an end. Boom, it's done. And you step over to another world, and it's totally different. You have no idea what you're doing in the next hour, next day, next week, next month. You've got to go ahead and you're basically learning again. The reason why I say it's different between enlisted and officer is that, you know, officers, their transitioning classes are very different. Their transitioning classes are designed around them stepping out and being executives and being managers, where honestly, the enlisted transitioning classes are, to me, at the, at the time, they seem to be designed more around just being able to get out and just function as a civilian, you know, and just kind of survive and figure things out so you can kind of get started. I mean, if I had anything to go ahead and and tell myself, you know, my, my, myself back then is that don't wait. Don't wait till your last six months before you're about ready to get out. And then start thinking, what am I going to do? You should be planning two, three years before the end of your tour or the end of your enlistment. You should already be thinking at least two years ahead of time. Gary, does that apply equally to enlisted and officer corps? Oh, yeah. Yeah, both. And I actually mentor both. I I have uh, both officers and enlisted that reach out to me. And everything from, you know, uh, hey, I'm going to be getting out in about two years. I'm starting to put my resumes together. What do you think? You know, and what should I be doing? I want to go ahead and get in the security community. And I'm thinking about these are the kind of fields I'm thinking about targeting. And I'm actually working with a, a guy who's an officer right now in D.C. I've sent him my resume. We're looking at his stuff and I'm kind of helping him word it and explaining to him that you may want to have different resumes depending on, on the opportunity that you might want to target. And then I'm also walking him through just kind of the ideas of what the various jobs are going to be like and getting involved in the community, you know, ISSA, ISACA, InfraGuard, telling them that, you know, hey, you should start these professional organizations now because you want to start building a different network. You know, you're always going to have that military network and people that you've served with, but now you need a different network, you know, and a different community. So don't wait is the first thing. You talk about multiple resumes, you talk about community, but what do you find that either officer or enlisted what are they most concerned about? What are they, I dare use the word afraid, but what are they in transitioning to be a civilian in, in working at a corporation rather than, than being in service? What are they worried about and what should they be worried about? Because oftentimes when we transition in life, I can remember taking on different responsibilities and having a litany of things I was scared of. And it turns out most of those never happened. It was other stuff that I didn't think about. So what are they scared of, but what should they be concerned about instead? I can tell you, I think all of us, you know, are concerned, especially if you get a husband or a wife and children, is, you know, you think about, okay, how am I going to be able to still provide, still be able to take care of my family in a different environment that I've never been in before? And all of us have that fear. You know, all of us, you know, think about it. And for them, it's also different because in some ways they're leaving a community that they've been attached to. And I mean, I can tell you, 
to this day, you know, being a, a military retiree, when I come back to, um, you know, sometimes I'll go on a military base to go shopping or something like that. It feels very different for me because I've left that. I've moved on. I'm in a different community. As an executive, I travel a lot and I don't deal with the military base very much anymore. You know, so that that's a whole other part of me when I was younger, when I actually had hair. It's a transition in professional growth. It's a transition in growth internally in, in yourself. And you and it's something that you're going to have to face and you have to conquer because all of us have changes in our life. And it's focused on, and I think a lot of it's just the unknown. It's the unknown of, okay, am I going to be good enough at this? And one of the biggest things that, you know, I know a lot of them are also concerned about, and even myself, I find when I interview at an organization is, and I find a lot of us professionals in cybersecurity who are actually prior military. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're very driven to work in an organization, which is mission focused. Yes. We are still driven to serve. We're still driven to provide a service and to serve and feel like, you know, we are a part of something that we're having an impact, that we're providing something of value. And we want an organization that just isn't just popping out the next piece of crap to go ahead and sell, but is actually, that actually has a mission, that is doing something within the community, within, you know, within our society that we feel proud of, that we want to be a part of, that we want to be, you know, a piece of the impact and to, and they look for that. You will find many of us veterans look for that. It's part of our core DNA that gets drilled to us, you know, in the years that we're there is that you're part of something bigger and you matter and together as a group, you can impact and provide value. And so we're looking for that when we go ahead and find a place to work. And so it becomes more than just a job. It becomes right. again, another community. It becomes another place in which you are valued. And that's what we look for. I want to come back to to mission because I think that's something that we often lack in a lot of different ways. For a moment, let's pretend that one of us, let's say that I'm a hiring manager, director, VP, whatever. I've not been in military service. My, my family has, my father was. But I am I am looking to hire vets, and you covered mission very well. But me being ignorant, or maybe somebody listening now is new to this. Maybe they've never hired a vet. Maybe they've never thought about hiring a vet. How do you make that transition easier on that end? Because there's a translation that happens. There's different oh, yeah. terminology. There's you talked about mission. How do you look that person in the eye and say, "Hey, I'm." we're going to work on this and this is going to be successful. What's a couple of tips there for the non-vet manager leader looking to hire or who has vets working for them now? Being a vet, I tend to work with a lot of vets. And many of the things I have to go ahead and tell them is that, okay, we've got a new mission. You know, we've got a new focus on what we're doing. But remember, our time scale is different. Hmm. Remember, it's not life and death. All right. so. It isn't like, you know, you have to push your family aside and work 20-hour days. We can still go ahead and provide value and still focus on, you know, the core business operations of what we're doing without impacting family. Without, you know, you've got a little bit more leeway now so that you can still go ahead and be focused on something, but, you know, you can breathe a little bit more. I sit there, you know, and I've had to explain to them, especially if they're in cybersecurity, said, remember, and when you're in DOD, when you're in the federal government, the risk is black and white. 
you're either secured or you're not. You're either certified or you're not. That's, and a lot of life and death is around those decisions. In corporate America, risk is all gray. Right. You have a lot more room for risk. You have a lot more room to go ahead and put secondary controls in place. Where in DOD and the military, a lot of times you don't because it's very specific in what you're doing. And when you're dealing with military, that takes a little bit of getting used to because you've got now you've got more decisions you can make. You've got more flexibility and you get used to that and you get used to the fact that, okay, hey, I don't have to wait for somebody else to tell me to go ahead and do this. I can make decisions now and I'm expected to go ahead and make these decisions and bring these things to the table. And so that takes some getting used to. And then when I talk with managers, I said, you remember a lot of times when you're dealing with military, you know, if you've got an issue, if you don't want them to solve it, don't bring it up <laughs> because they're going to take that issue and they're going to break it down into pieces and they're going to go ahead and figure out which ways and they're going to start moving hard on it. Right. You know? And so if you're not really wanting them to jump on something, don't bring it up as being a problem unless you actively want them to go ahead and get focused on this and start you know, breaking it down. And they're going to solve your problem for you. But at the same time, if you turn them loose and you want them to go ahead and work on this, understand that you need to provide guidance and that you need to kind of steer them in the direction you want to go, but give them flexibility because they're used to being able to work in teams. They're used to being able to think on the fly and to be able to make changes to make something work. Gary, you, you said something earlier that I want to make sure I clarify. You made the message of making their own decisions. Is there a case where there's a, maybe a subset of vet that's moving into the corporate world? Is there sometimes a, a reluctance to, to make their own call on things that they're waiting for sort of that, that new chain of command to kind of make that call? Is that an accurate statement? I think the, the method, if that's true, then is to, to kind of give them guidance around what they can and can't sort of action on. Is that, is that an, an accurate assessment? I think all of us, you know, want to kind of understand the better understand the chain of command. So we, you know, we understand who we report to. But at the same time, you also want to understand, okay, what's my remit? How much room do I have to move? What kind of decisions mm -hmm. am I allowed to make? What kind of impact are you comfortable with? And what kind of impact do you want me to go ahead and you can come right up to this level and then stop? You need to come talk. Right. That kind of thing. Where in that or in the military, that's pretty much spelled out. In the civilian world, it's not. Sometimes we end up butting, you know, we end up butting heads because we just kind of assume, you know, the rules that we've been doing for the last so many years are relatively the same, and they're not. So it really helps if you're a manager and you're working with vets. You can spell out how much room they've got. You know, you've got this much room to be creative, and these are the things that you're allowed to do. And if you get to like these levels, or if you've got any questions, I used to tell my guys. It's wide open for you to go ahead and troubleshoot and for you to be able to figure out next steps. But one thing, ask the question. I have no problem at all, no time, you know, 24-7. If you need to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning because your mind is running and you're right. thinking about something and you want some guidance, I would much rather have you ask the question. Correct. So if they're, if they're not sure, is this action I take, might it be disruptive in a way that I can't see yeah. to call and ask? Right. Right. And I sit there, and one of the things I, I tell them right away, I said, yeah, I pretty much have two rules. One, don't lie to me. And two, understand you're going to break things. <laughs> for security, we break things. With that said, if you break it, you own it. 
and give me some alternatives. Give me some ways in which we can work around things or you know troubleshoot and fix things. Expect that if you break something, you own it, and we're going to go ahead and together as a team figure out a way to fix it or uh, work around or whatever. You know, don't blame somebody else. Don't run from it and hide it. You own it and we move on because I'm expecting you're going to break things. The second point especially is a really good point where not pointing at other people to sort of own your problem. I think that ownership thing, I think we lack that as humans often. So forget about whether we're former military or not, or, or IT or InfoSec or whatever. I think ownership yields typically the best results to say, hey, you know what? I may not even own all of it, but I'm going to own it uh, and I'm going to drive from it. And I think about it is in, in cybersecurity, especially because of just how so intertwined it is in business today. It's actually part of the part of your professional growth is that you're going to have these things and you need to own them so that you can actually grow and figure things out. I can't count the number of times where we made a change or we did something that we thought was for the better. And then there was some secondary issues that nobody knew about. And through troubleshooting that and fixing what we did, you know, we found out a whole other side of the business, you know, some apps that we didn't know about or some legacy network stuff that nobody had documentation on. It happens. My thing is, is that instead of spending the blame game, you focus on what the issue is and you get it fixed and you move on. And then, you know, you kind of do the after action piece afterwards and think, okay, what could we have done better? How could we have handled this? Remember, security impacts business. We are there to enhance business, not stop business. So how do we go ahead and make sure we don't do this next time? You, you mentioned something that I think for many in IT, maybe they know it, maybe they don't, but it has military roots. You talked about an AAR. That certainly has a tie into InfoSec, especially incident response. We didn't talk about this earlier, but what makes a good AAR, in your opinion? I think um, the good thing is that, obviously, when you're in the middle of the process of whatever you're doing, whatever action you're doing, whatever whatever change you know that you're doing, whatever maintenance you're doing, is that you've got documentation. You've got documentation of what should have happened, and then when it doesn't happen that way, and things go south or something else is happening, you document what's going on, what changes you've made, who made the changes, time, dates, that kind of stuff. So that when you get back together and you're whiteboarding this out, again, there's no blame. But you as a team can go ahead and reconstruct what happened. And then you can actually start you know, mind mapping as to what you thought was going to happen and where it went south. And then you, start, you can start thinking about ways to go ahead and correct it. And the thing about it is, is that you can't do a proper AAR without data. And so you've got to document. And that's the reason why you definitely want to make sure you've got a robust change management. You've got a robust rollback plan. You know, so if things don't work, this is what you're going to do to put back. A lot of it is hygiene. A lot of it is just the basic care and feeding of a security team and managing your security stack. And unfortunately, a lot of it is paperwork. You know, the people are doing, but it comes in handy so much when things get ugly. Gary, does, does you mentioned it needs to be data focused and information focused. Does opinion have a place in AAR? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I've had, in fact, I've had people go ahead and write, you know, I believe it should do this because I've had, you know, uh, experience with this, this, and this. 
That's fine. Now I understand from a context perspective how you approached it and what you expected to happen. And when it didn't happen that way, then it starts running through your head. Okay, he expected to happen, you know, this to happen that way because he dealt with this type of server or this type of app, and it was this build. Okay, now I start running through my head. Okay, was it that certain type of server? Was it that type of build? What was different than what he assumed? And that actually, you know, has helped me multiple times in troubleshooting to get to an answer quicker because I'm looking for the delta. I'm looking for the difference right. of what they assumed was going to happen. And I would much rather if, if they document that, you know, because now I understand their context. I understand, okay, this wasn't just a dumbass decision. They actually had a reason for what they did. And nine times out of 10 is because of experience, because they've done something like this before and it worked just this time it didn't. Right. Is there anything else that you would say that makes for a good after action report or to flip it around? Is there anything that you see as a common flaw that would always irk you or that you would advise not putting in or, or maybe something that you frequently had to rework with an associate on, a, on after action? The issues I've had with after action is that I've always wanted it to be specific about, you know, it was around some type of, you know, digital or mechanical or some type of maintenance. This is what we expected. This is what happened. This is what we're going to do to go ahead and fix it. You know, what I hate is when they're written and politics gets involved and they're blaming a certain group. Well, this group didn't do this ticket and they should have done this. And I, I hate the blame game because then you're not learning anything. What ends up happening is, is that it then becomes used as a hammer to go ahead and beat a specific person or a specific group. And then people don't want to be honest. And they don't want to bring things out. And that's what this is for, is to go ahead and figure out how you can do things better, not how you can hurt people. If you have a politically charged organization globally, and or if you have what I'll call poor leadership, in my experience, something like an AAR, which should be a, a beautiful resource to really look at what are the real issues that we have in this environment and how do we resolve them from a risk, from an audit, from a technical perspective. If you have bad leadership slash politics in excess, it'll be used as a hammer, as you mentioned. It'll be used as a political tool, oh, yeah. uh, which uh, I've had to call out, you know, even gotten myself in trouble in the past and uh, prior employers saying, hey, you know, I, I see what you're doing. How do you, is there a way around any of that? I mean, it, so don't point fingers, right? Don't, don't you yourself or your team to partake. Is there anything else from your perspective that you can do to kind of avoid that game at all well I mean, i've had before where what we decided to do we went ahead and we did a lessons learned after we had a specific incident and it involved multiple teams and there were screw-ups across multiple teams what i ended up doing was instead of getting you know this thing to where you know, departments were going to be pointing at each other's fingers we did lessons we, we actually broke it up so i did a lessons learned with one small group and a lessons learned with another small group so each of them learned what they could have done, and I just basically had them ignore the other teams. And after I did the lessons learned with, like, you know, the four groups, then I stitched it together for more of an executive um, view of what happened and, you know, the failings, you know, and what we could go ahead and do, you know, to go ahead and do better. And I was very cognizant of making sure that I wasn't really naming names or anything like that. Instead, it was just more 
I kept the focus on the process. Right. And, uh, that this was a process that broke down, and it was my belief that the reason was was that the uh, the teams had become so familiar with the process and uh, you know repetition of having done it so much that it was actually laziness. They just you know, assumed it was always going to be done this way, and it was always going to work. Wow. Interesting. So did, did each of those teams, those four groups, did they all report up through you or were you kind of acting kind of an ambassador into other organizations? Yeah. Well, this was dealing with incident response. So two of them reported to me and two of them were uh, matrix. They were from like other departments that reported up, you know, kind of a dotted line to us. Good. I think that's an important distinction. Actually, the IR example is a perfect one, even more perfect that some of the people didn't report directly to you. Probably dotted line IT, maybe even, you know, privacy or that kind of thing. I think that's good because I think there's a lot of people that, that listen to the show that are probably in a very similar spot. Sadly, security is political and avoiding that is important. Breaking it up like that, I was trying to go ahead and reduce the political charge in the whole thing, you know, because what I wanted to do was we still managed the incident. It was just, to me, it was sloppy. We could have done it better. So breaking it up to where I dealt with the smaller groups, you know, you're able to actually get a little bit more intimate, a little bit more truthful with each other and talk about what they could do better within their small group. And then I kind of put it all together, you know, at the, at the end. And then as the incident lead, what I did was I laid it all out, laid the failings of what we can do, what we're going to do better. And then I basically said, you know, overall responsibility was mine as the incident lead. And our issues was this, and this is what I am going to do to make sure that this team does better in the future. Yeah, because I didn't want anybody jumping on anybody else. So speaking on doing better in the future, I think one of the things that drives that is something you mentioned earlier and that I love, and that's that's mission. I think in many cases, I believe that we have sort of, maybe not phony mission statements, but we contrive them to what we think is going to sound good on a piece of paper or maybe on a bulletin board, but it sort of lacks emotion, if you will. I'd like, if you would, to kind of define mission to you. And is that a same thing as having a mission statement? We talked about the, the, the connection into what veterans expect, but I think all of us can, can expect uh, having a great mission. Tell me about mission. What's your what's your perspective on mission, and is that the same as having a mission statement? Well, I think you know, like the mission statement is is a way to put it in words to try to get a bunch of different groups of people, you know, working at, at an organization, marching and focused in the same way, in the same path, so that they're all kind of pulling together. Um, the problem is that everybody looks at you know looks at it a little bit different to the life experience. To me, um, mission is really about purpose. Hmm. You know, what is the purpose of the organization? Obviously, the purpose is, you know, we want to stay in business. <laughs> we want to be able to make money. We want to be able to pay our employees. Okay. But when you take that out of the way, when you take just the pure capitalistic piece out of the way, what else is your purpose? I mean, right. you know, what are you doing for the betterment of, of society or your community or the group of organizations that you operate in? Or, you know, the products that you're producing, how are your customers supposed to use this with a purpose? How does it help them? How does it make them better? To me, mission is really is focused around that. It's focused around purpose. And I think, you know, when you're in the military, you get that much drilled into you. You understand your purpose. 
because of the fact that you live it daily. Right. You, know, you live it daily. You go on deployments. I mean, you know, in my 20 years, I, I did eight deployments. You know, I've been in roughly 54 different countries, you know, in my 20 years, you know, when I was in the Navy. I constantly saw the purpose of what the U.S. Navy was for and the value that we brought back to the United States of America and what we did for our country and for our citizens. And that was our mission. You, you understood that piece. And so when you leave and you join the business community, you're looking for something like that. You're looking for a company that gets that, that its mission is wrapped around a specific purpose that you believe in, that you understand. It might be part of the core values of what you feel as a person, whether it's through faith or family or community or you know whatever it is, or politics or whatever drives you. When I look at that, you know, when I look at a company and everything, I tend to look at their mission statements. And, and a lot of times I, I can tell, okay, I see you guys are doing this, and these are the deals that you're doing, and this is who you're partnered with, but your mission statement says this. You can kind of tell somebody had kind of come up with this idea, and obviously they're no longer with the company. But there are companies that are very, very focused on that mission, on their purpose of what they are going to be. And you may not like the companies. I mean, you know, some of them, you know, like Walmart or Amazon or Starbucks or even Google, they've got specific things, specific motto, a specific mission or something that they pretty much try to live by. Some of them, as they've gotten bigger, it's a lot harder to do that because right. you've gotten so large. You've got so many people, diversity and everything brings strengths. And it also dilutes things that you start with when you were only 10 people. And I think that mission statement, that sense of purpose, that sense of work, you've got to constantly revisit it, and it's going to change. So that's kind of the the meta version. What in big picture and at, at a company level, which is extremely important. What about those that are maybe they're indifferent to their company's mission statement, or maybe maybe they feel too disconnected. However, they have a a unit of people. They have a team. There's this camaraderie within the security team or maybe even a sub-team like the SOC. Do you encourage the development of a mission, a, a purpose statement at those lower levels as well? And, and oh, yeah. do you think that's important? And does that change? Like, what's the, is the formula for that different, Gary? Because I think this is extremely important, and I think m- many security teams lack this. I've done things where like, I'm thinking that, okay, like when I worked at WebRoot, we had a specific kind of like a mission statement of the company. And it, it dealt with, because of the fact that our customers were SMBs and MSPs, you know, they were very focused, hugely focused on that community because that's the community that they lived in. For me, for the security team, you know, I took that at the top and said, okay, how do we support that? Well, you know, we're basically going to be able to provide services, data, anything that our traveling, you know, marketing teams and sales teams and you know, we had offices all over the world, you know, and so we started looking at coming up with a mission of the fact that we needed to be able to provide risk management services and security services anytime, anywhere on any type of device. And that data should be available to our employees anytime, anywhere securely. And these were things that we were looking at, and it was all focused on how we were going to go ahead and support the mission of the company. So the security team itself we took on our own mission statement. And underneath that mission statement, we had specific action statements on how we were going to do that. Right. And so what, and then I took those action statements 
you know, after we did an internal assessment, we looked at our security stack, we built out a three-year strategic plan of things that we wanted to improve to reduce risk, and it was all tied back into the specific action statements that we had selected to go ahead for our internal mission of how we were going to support the company. It really helps at WebRoot, I reported to the CFO. And so I was able to go ahead and show him, hey, I'm not making you money. I'm here to go ahead and enhance the dev teams and enhance marketing and enhance sales. You know, and these are the services that we're providing. This is our mission statement. And this is how we're going to do it by doing this, this, this. And so he was able to go ahead and see with our three-year plan, the projects we had in play, he could track the maturity of those projects and how we were if we were spending or if we were coming in on time. As those projects matured, I started setting up metrics that we would go ahead and use to be able to measure the productivity of the tools and everything we put in place. But it was all tied into our internal mission statement of the team and how we were going to support the larger one of the company. Right. And they do change. When WebRoot got purchased by Carbonite, things change. And so the team itself had to change because the business shifted. Yeah. It was a different focus of the business. I think your your formula, though, is very good. By the way, I bet not, I don't know, 10% of security teams have that traceability uh, going from organizational mission or company mission, rather, to organizational mission, that into these action statements, and then tying that into kind of the three-year plan, which is ultimately your strategy, and breaking that down. What are we going to make better? I think having that traceability is a very allows you to have a very mature conversation, in this case, with the CFO. So there's, there had to have been great clarity, or at least maybe yeah. greater clarity. Ultimately, those plans are going to break down into, into projects, which are ultimately budget requests. And what we did with those, we broke it up over a three-year period. Then we started doing lunch and learns. We started doing going out and visiting you know, the different offices. I actually did, a, I had a whole, I had a slide deck where we went ahead and I was pretty much teaching, you know, people in the various other departments and offices on the CISO for the company because people didn't know who I was. And this is our purpose. This is what we're doing. These are the projects that we're doing. And it gave them a chance to see internally into the team. And it helped the team become very visible. They knew who was on the team now. They knew what we were doing and why changes were being made because we were getting ISO 27001 certified. They had visibility. And all of a sudden, you know, it was no longer we were this department that was in the back office that you only call when things don't work or there's a major emergency. Now, all of a sudden, they knew the different projects that we were working on. And we were asking many of them to volunteer right. and to be part of test groups for some of the, the new tools and the new things that we were uh, that we were putting in the stack. And I knew that I was successful when some of the departments started asking us to sit in on projects to evaluate risk and because they started trusting us. Employees would contact team members and say, you know, hey, my son did this to my home computer and we got this problem. What do you think about this? And so they actually started trusting us on stuff. Then I knew we were starting to make some headway with the culture itself. And I knew that we were on the right track. So trust is maybe a product of transparency and kind of clarity of mission. I want to go back a little bit as maybe an educational moment for the listener. Mission statement, I think people get that. Can you give an example of below the mission statement, you said there was an action statement or action statements that break down? What's an example of a generic action statement that that ultimately breaks down farther into part of the strategy? Can you give an example of that? 
we're going to protect critical data anytime, anywhere, and provide like required information to the teams needed. So you'd make something like that to where, okay, you're focused on data governance. Right. And But at the same time, so not only are you going to protect the data, but you also want to make sure that you have the technology in place to allow it to be used. Right. And a lot of it was geared towards some of the basic security controls of around data privacy. We would write these things down. We, we'd take a look at it and we're like, okay, what are some of the core things we're going to do besides, you know, we're going to go ahead and monitor, we're going to remediate, we're going to manage data, you know, help protect data, we're going to continuously assess our risk. And so these were things that we were, we were laying out that were some of our core services that we, that we provide. Because yeah. myself, I've always looked at a security team as a, as a service team. I'm not going to make you know, the organization money. However, we provide a critical service in reducing risk and managing a lot of the issues, basically data security, so that the organization can then be innovative. The organization can then do specific operations and know, you know from a relatively high-level standpoint that the risk is low and that data is going to be protected and they can expand or, or do whatever they, whatever they need to do. There was numerous times where I would get asked if I go board meeting, they'd say, well, you know, what's our level of risk? What's our level of exposure? We're looking at making this change or doing this type of operation. And how are you going to be able to support that? What are the things that we need to know before we spend that money, before we agree to those resources or agree to these contracts? But that's a lot of what I tried to be able to show is that with this framework in place and getting ISO certified and building out and documenting everything that we were doing, you could at least know to a specific level that our risk was here and that we had the monitoring controls in place to manage that and that we were flexible enough to adjust those depending on what the business wants to do. Because for me, and then cybersecurity, as a CISO, my job isn't to say no. My job is to say maybe. Right. Because I, I don't own the company's risk. Risk is based on company decisions. They purchase a technology or they've started a new third-party vendor. So there's some type of a business decision that they've made or a technology decision that they've made that involves risk. My job is to be able to understand that risk, document it, bring it to the table so that we all as a team can look at it, figure out how we want to mitigate it, and then I help manage and monitor it. Gary, I think there's a lot of people that a lot of security teams and a lot of peer teams would argue with one of the statements you just made, and that was that that the CISO or the security team doesn't own the risk, that they many of them believe that it's the CISO that owns it or the CISO's yeah. program that owns it. How, who does own it or who should own it? Like if there's a name that goes on it, I know it depends on the company, but yeah. briefly, how do you, where, where should it go and, and what's your take on that? This risk question is what drives so much of, I think it, it actually drives a lot of the stress that CISOs are under. It drives a lot of us to burnout. It drives a lot of us to change jobs every 18 months, whatever. Yeah. And the reason is, is that risk is made up of so many things that the CISOs can't control. I can't stop marketing from buying this application that they, that they want. <laughs> now, right. I can go ahead and help them review it. I can go ahead and give them decisions on, you know, on, you know, hey, this may not be a good idea, or, hey, you may want to have this SLA, or, hey, you may want to ask what they're doing with our data, per se, and make recommendations. 
But that's about as far as you're going to go. There's just things that are really out of your control. I mean, you can put policies in place and try to be able to manage that technology creep and try to, you know, at least say, okay, hey, if we're going to do something, it's going to be SaaS. And, it, and, it needs to, and these are some of the basic guidelines that you have to have. But, you know, whether you like it or not, there are things that are out of your control. There are things that you can, you can kind of passively impact, right. things that you can directly impact. And that's the reason why I say, you know, we don't, when you look at it, you don't own the risk because the risk is actually the whole company. It's, it's everybody. Everybody right. in the company is making different decisions. You know, they get, they're getting emails, they're clicking on links, they're plugging things into the network that they know they're not supposed to. They're accessing uh, corporate assets on their home computer when they know they're not supposed to. You know, there's a lot of things that are beyond your control. You're not going to be able to go ahead and have a security stack that monitors and locks down everything. It's just not happening. You know, the company doesn't have enough money. And honestly, the network would just be, it'd just be, it'd be brutal. So you kind of come to this point where you got to focus on the fact that, you know, there are certain things that you can control. There's a lot that you can't and risk across the, the whole enterprise really is an organizational thing that everybody has responsibility in. And yes, your job is heavily tied into it. And your job really should be more about being able to document that risk, being able to see it, helping come up with mitigation strategies for it, helping be able to monitor it and manage the security controls for it. Things that are you're able to control, document, put metrics on. Because some of the stuff it is, it's totally beyond. And if you want the ulcer, if you want the, you know, the heart attack at the age of 45, go for it. Because that's where you're going. Well, Gary, I think, uh, yeah, I think that that's something that it's probably a topic for uh, maybe even another show where you focus on the ownership or maybe trying to own too much and then the negative health ramifications and stress. It's starting to get talked about a little more, but but not as much. I mean, you have substance abuse, there's high percentages of of health issues, divorce, all sorts of bad stuff. Presented an RSA on it last year and for the longest time, it's been pretty quiet, and now they're actually talking about it. I'm glad people are starting to talk about it. Before we run out of time, there's two things I want to cover. You are, uh, among many things, you're an author as well, and you just recently published a new book. Yep. For, for clarity, for everyone listening, you didn't even bring this up. Uh, I brought it up, uh, so it wasn't like Gary was pushing his book. But you wrote a new book, uh, The Essential Guide to Cybersecurity for SMBs. Uh, which yeah. is a finer point to a, a larger CISO series that you've done. It is on Amazon, as with all your books. But if you would, what's one thing that you think that SMBs get wrong about InfoSec? Many SMBs uh, think they don't need it. We're just not big enough for it yet. And they don't understand that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're only a five or a 10 person shop or a 200 person, you know, company. You're a target. Believe me, you know the cyber criminals like SMBs because they're because they know you don't have robust security, you don't have big security teams, and so you're an easier target. And they know many of the smaller SMBs are tied into supply chains that go to bigger companies. Got it. My thing is that if you're connected to the internet, you need security. And that book that I wrote, it's interesting because it's not for the company. It's for the security practitioner that works at the company. It's actually a security guide 
for people that work in security for SMBs. That one person security guy or that brand new security manager with a couple of security people who's trying to handle, you know, a 200 person company. And all of a sudden he's been told that he needs the right policies or he needs to, we need to go ahead and make sure that we've got two of everything. Right. What does that look like? You know, uh, that kind of thing. And so the book is written as a guide for security practitioners that work at SMBs who tend to be short on resources or tend to be short on just, you know, the methodologies and stuff that are used in the larger companies. And so I, I basically took about 22 articles that I've written over, you know, the last couple of years and I pulled them all in and uh, actually updated them, focused towards the small and medium businesses and then put them together in a book, you know, with a lot of references and everything. It's actually done really well. I've had a lot of, um, I've had a lot of small businesses contact me and just thank me, you know, for putting it together. And that's all it was, was um, when I was at WebRoot, I worked with a ton of, uh, a ton of our customers that were SMBs or, or MSPs trying to provide services to them. And I realized it was a major part of our economy, a major part of our community that's really underserved um, in cybersecurity. Well, I love the, the perspective of the book, probably more than anything, and that it's for maybe that one person or maybe half of one person that's the security guy or gal that has to defend and, and needing not only guidance, but maybe some inspiration uh, and, and, and how to find some influence and how to justify these things with maybe, um, maybe few resources and, and maybe even less cooperation. So I, I like that perspective a lot. It's uh, the Essential Guide to Cybersecurity for SMBs, uh, for those listening. There's also an entire series. If you search for Gary, you can find all of his books. And again, he did not bring this up. I found it and brought it up. One more thing. We're coming kind of a, a close at our time here. We ask this of every guest, Gary, and it's uh, one of my favorite questions. Pursuant to the name of the show, which is the new CISO, uh, what does being a new CISO mean to you, Gary? I actually was talking to one last night, you know, on one of our virtual happy hours that we were doing here in San Diego, because we're all under house arrest at the moment. <laughs> to me, it's it's a new opportunity. It's, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. You know, I find cybersecurity fascinating, and being a CISO, you kind of get a wider view, and you see more than just security. You get a chance to work with legal and compliance and risk and all these other different departments, and you get a chance to see how businesses are run and how security and technology ties into them. For me, it's 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 all about opportunity and, and how far you want to take it. I love the answer. I love what we've covered today. I mean, we've gone from veteran transition to mission statement to, you know, not focusing on blame or making sure that you don't point it to others, you know, so focus, the purpose, all the rest of it. Thank you so much for sort of guiding us around uh, your security mind. And, and thanks for sharing uh, all of what you've done uh, with us today on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, I said, you, when you, when you guys reached out and asked, I, uh, I thought it would be really fun and uh, I've really had a good time. I'm glad you have. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.